felt like I just had a visit to the small country church I'd never been to. <laughs> I'm drawn to those comic book heroes of massive strength and daring do. The ones who soar through galaxies, bear whole planets on their backs, make a grand appearance on Earth to save the day. But they've got nothing on our God. His very presence quakes the Earth. He pokes the heavens with one finger and the rains pour down. He whispers to the wind and it listens. He snatches us from the clutches of death and sets us in the land of eternity because he loves us. And his salvation is not a one-time thing. If we say yes to his proposal and follow his commandments, he promises to be with us and in us forever. John 14, 15 through 21. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it, is neither, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because you live because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Morning. Like they were saying earlier, it's Memorial Day, so you all aren't supposed to be here. Uh, supposed to be off water skiing or doing something fun? No, but it's great to see so many people here on a three-day weekend, though. I really enjoyed the worship singing this morning. Those were really great songs, kind of unexpected because they've fallen so greatly because I want to talk to this morning about grace. Um, we sing a lot and talk about grace here in the church, and it's definitely thrown around a lot. And um, I think when I first came to faith, I it just sort of accepted it, but grace seemed like kind of a buzzword that people just used as kind of like the Staples commercials where it was the easy button. They're like, I don't really understand this other person, but I'm just going to give them grace and move on. And, um, you know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks a lot about the being concerned about cheap grace or grace that's not truly invested and truly uh, experienced. And I actually want to read a story uh, this morning from Blue Like Jazz, which is one of my favorite books, where Don Miller kind of confronts this idea that he had a lot of trouble really getting grace. And I think that it's, like I said, sometimes we just want to click the button and move on, and we actually need to wrestle with how hard it is to understand and actually accept 
the grace that God gives us. He writes, For a very long time I could not understand why some people have no trouble accepting the grace of God while others experience immense difficulty. I counted myself as the ones who had trouble. I would hear about grace, read about grace, and even sing about grace, but accepting grace is an action I could not understand. It seemed wrong to me to not have to pay for my sins, to not feel guilty about it. More than that, grace did not seem like the thing I was looking for. It was too easy. I wanted to feel as though I earned my forgiveness, as though God and I were buddies doing favors for each other. Enlightenment came in an unexpected place, a grocery store. While standing in line at the checkout counter, the lady in front of me pulled out food stamps to pay for her groceries. I had never seen food stamps before. They are more colorful than I imagined and look more like Monopoly money than stamps. It is obvious as she unfolded the currency that she, I, and the checkout girl were quite uncomfortable with the interaction. I wish there was something I could do. I wished I could pay for her groceries myself. But to do so would have been a cause of a greater scene. The checkout girl quickly did her job, signing and verifying the documents, and filed the lady through the line. The woman never left her head, lifted her head as she organized her bags of groceries and set them into her cart. She walked away from the checkout stand in the stiff movements of a person that knows they are being watched. And I realized that it was not the woman who should be pitied. It was me. Somehow I had come to believe that because a person is in need, they are candidates for sympathy, not just charity. It is not that I wanted to buy her groceries. The government was already doing that. I wanted to buy her dignity. And yet by judging her, I was the one taking her dignity away. I love to give to charity, but I don't want to be charity. This is why I have so much trouble with grace. When we look at grace. We look at the triumph of God's resiliency in our lives, the victory of God, and it hinges on a deep understanding of grace, on a felt understanding of grace. Not intellectual, but wrestled with. Um, That God will never leave us or forsake us, um, and that we are failed, fallen, and forgiven, and God is enduring through us, patiently beside us, and never leaves us we must be willing to be rescued without condition or any notion of self-preservation. And in Psalm 66 and John 14, we'll look at today, we see that God is the preserver of our life and that he has specific aims for the life that is preserved and that our response to grace is spiritually empowered. And we'll see that God never asks anything that he does not provide everything for. Grace is not a debt to be paid. It is the creation of a new life to be lived. In Psalm 66, um, we see three different sort of parts of the psalmist's thought. And first of all, this is a declaration. This is a a testimony. And we really see that in the third part that uh, he is giving really direction of praise to other people in light of his testimony and his personal experience of God's grace. Uh, The thing about trials and hardships and the preservation that God gives us is that it doesn't make trials not trials. It doesn't make pain not pain. 
but awareness of God's love inspires praise and thanksgiving in the darkest of times. And the psalmist speaks out of the deliverance of God. He says, praise our God, all you peoples. He has preserved our lives, kept our feet from slipping. For God has tested us and refined us like silver and brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs and let people ride over our heads. And we went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. And the but at the end of that thought is the most important part. And the psalmist has a, an intricate sovereignty of seeing God in the midst. It's not just that God showed up at the end and said, you're okay now. God was walking with him through the fire, through the water, through the prison, through the trials. The human will wants to understand, command, and to know, to know that we are able to somehow save ourselves or do something for ourselves. But truly, God places us where we are that we will know that he preserves our lives and that he alone is the giver of all good things and all grace. Many of the Psalms actually go back to one specific event of deliverance, which is the Exodus. Um, when God brought his people out of slavery, brought them into a land of, of abundance. The question the psalmist turns to is, that's what God does. God delivers, God preserves, God gives grace. So what will I do? He continues in verse 13, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you in an offering of rams and I will offer bulls and goats. The psalmist looks to honor God because of what God has promised and done. Because God has shown up. Because God has walked through the trials with him. And it's funny, uh, mentioned Beth uh, about Anabaptist roots, and this passage particularly reminded me of Martin Luther. So um, if you do have staunch Anabaptist roots, then buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to talk about Martin Luther for just a minute. Uh, Martin Luther was a reformer. He's very famous for starting the Lutheran movement and opposing the Catholic Church in the 17th century. But the story sounds a lot like these three verses about fulfilling his vows. Um, Luther, as a young man, had recently completed a master's degree, was going on to becoming a lawyer. And on a visit from his parents on holiday, was coming home and uh, was caught in a severe thunderstorm and lightning struck the ground immediately next to him. And the air pressure blasted him back and knocked him to the ground. And in his distress, he called out to God saying, save me and I will become a monk. And Luther survived that night. And uh, about two months later, after he had finished the semester and had a big party with his friends, he went into the local monastery and became a monk. He later would write, Faith is living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times over. And that, to me, is... It's almost the opposite extreme of, you know, grace is not just this easy button that lets us kind of bypass wrestling with things, but grace is now all of a sudden just being delivered from the worst 
possible fate. It's something that we would literally almost give anything for. Uh, you know, the people cry out, and to me, that's almost a caricature in our society. I can think of at least three Simpsons characters that have cried out to God. You know, God, do this, and I'll, I'll follow you. God, do this, and I'll. You know, I've often thought, God, let me win the lottery, and I'll support foreign missions. Um, just not a very righteous thought, but um, it's a caricature because it seems like we wouldn't, you know, no one would fulfill that. They'd just take from God if grace is so free and easy and then just move on with their life. And what you see in the rece- those who truly receive grace and truly wrestle with grace and understand the depth and the weight of it is that they fulfill their vows, uh, not out of obligation. No one's paying God back but out of love, out of a true understanding of what God gives us. We worship a God for who he is, but we know who he is because of what he does. He's a God that delivers people, who saves people, who forgives people. A God who sent his only son into the world, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's it. And then... The psalmist turns to just a a public testimony. He says, Come and hear, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected me. And the focus of this psalm is on testing and rescue and forgiveness. And the fact of it is, the, the true grace of it is not necessarily even that God for sure delivered this person that's writing this psalm. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're going into the furnace, they say, you know, they tell the king, we're not going to worship anything you tell us to worship. You can throw us into the fire and our God will save us. And then they say, even if he doesn't, even if we just perish, we're not going to conform. Um, the testimony of God's deliverance and God's grace is not even that he delivers 100% of the time anyone that ever asks, but that he listens and that he is present and that he knows what we are going through and what we need and that he provides whatever is needed in that moment. And when I think about this public testimony, I think when... I became a believer in high school, and I started going to a church and a youth group, and I was one of the few kids there that didn't raise, wasn't raised in the church and didn't have uh, Christian parents, and so I actually got asked like a number of times to share my testimony with people or my conversion experience, and it was very, uh, it was very, you know, a thing to, you know, you should know your testimony, know how to share your testimony with people. It's kind of another buzzword that people threw around, and as I was going through high school, I was doing this. But I was also participating in other aspects of the church. I was a part of a, a group of youth groupy guys that, you know, would hang out and make fart jokes and talk, <laughs> talk about the Bible and play video games and kind of mix and match whatever we were interested in. But, um, you know, and just every, like, every, it was really good and really fun. And at the same time, it was really just kind of hilarious looking back on it. I had this buddy, Jim, that he was a part of it. And, uh, he was hilarious. One time, I remember he came to the group, we were talking about prayer requests, and he was like, you guys did not pray for me this week because I didn't read my Bible once. <laughs> we were talking about, you know, pray that I read my Bible every day. It's like, 
Uh, just a little funny, but um, but we did keep track of prayer requests. And when I look back on that time, I do remember my conversion experience. It was a, a really great thing. I think I've shared it here, and uh, shared it with a number of you. If I haven't shared it from the front, but um, but the bigger testimony when I look back on that time, I wish I'd been able to somewhere in my books. But I have a notebook that I brought to all these meetings with these guys, where I would write down prayer requests. I had this notation I just made up. I just drew a circle, wrote the prayer request in the guy's name. And then I'd go back either the next week or the next month, I'd just go through it, and I'd put a plus mark in the circle for answered yes, a minus mark in the circle for answered no. And after like four years of meeting with these guys and being a part of this group, I just had this notebook full of plus marks. It's really like it just, I mean, there's some minuses too, but you just flip through the pages and it's like plus, 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 plus. Uh, I think the simplicity of that artifact just reminds me that God listens. God hears our prayers. That is one of the main differences between God and any other ancient or modern um, styled God is that our God listens intimately to our prayers personally on our level. And God fulfills the promises that he has made and asks us to stand on them, to stand on the promise of, that he will hear us. And in John 14, Jesus makes a promise to us. And in John 14, we see three aspects of, of what Jesus is saying. He calls us to obey, and he promises us the Holy Spirit, and then he gives us a provision of the resurrection. And... Jesus just says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Um, and I think this is really the opposite of the perception that Don Miller was talking about. Uh, is if that perception of grace or wrestling with grace, it would say, you know, I love you, so now you have to keep my commandments. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, if you love me. This is a request of the will. God has given us grace and made it clear that we are free to leave, free to reject that grace. And as hard as it sounds, um, being obedient, we're not prone to being obedient, but Jesus makes us a promise to go with this request. He says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate or helper or counselor to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus calls us to intimacy with the person of God and to act obediently, and he provides this intimate indwelling presence of God, which allows us to obey. God preserves us for the sole fact that he wants to. He wants to give us the Holy Spirit. Uh, grace and God's abundant provision, they're God's prerogative. He is a loving God and it is, it is a hard, hard hurdle to jump over to receive more love than we think we deserve. Because that's what God offers us. That's what grace is. It's more than we deserve. And... Um, the Holy Spirit is kind of a gargantuan subject. It's, uh, you know, 
spend your whole life just focusing on that. And so I don't want to get into a PhD style lecture, but um, here he is called our advocate or our counselor or our comforter. He's the, literally the one who comes alongside us. And uh, it's funny because uh, one of the classic names for God is Wonderful Counselor. Uh, and I have often thought of that in comic fashion of like God being this old white-haired guy full of wisdom and knowledge that just booms out like, here's what you should do, sort of a motif. And, um, and, but my wife is a counselor, and the best thing she does is listen. Uh, and I've actually been tasked with being, I'm a grief counselor for a hospice, and that's the main thing I do is just listen to people. I don't really tell them what to do. Uh, I've been shouted at but not because I told people what to do, so I'm glad. Um, and so when I think of God as a wonderful counselor, yes, he is full of wisdom and knowledge. But more than that, God is the counselor who listens to us, who is compassionate to us. Think of the book of Job where God waits till the very end to speak, but he is listening. He is there. He is hearing those who come before him in need. I think the Holy Spirit, well, the Holy Spirit has many other titles, but this role of comforter and counselor, uh, Bible, the Bible gives commands to us regarding the Holy Spirit. It tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, not to quench the Holy Spirit, and most importantly, not to blaspheme or deny the Holy Spirit. And uh, these commands, these pictures just tell me that this is a, an interactive process with the Holy Spirit. This is a person that we are face-to-face -face with. It's not some wishy-washy Star Wars-y force. Um, it's a person that's calling us into a better discipline and a better obedience, an act of will that we choose. And I think the best part of this passage to me is the familial tone that Jesus gives it. He says, I'm giving you a counselor, a guide, someone alongside you. You will not be orphans. We have the Holy Spirit, and therefore we are not orphans. We are not abandoned without protection, guidance, provision, and nurturing. The Holy Spirit is our reminder of the image of God as our Father. So that we become who we are meant to be because of his influence and spiritual growth. And Jesus goes on and says, Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So God calls us to this love and transformational action, and he provides an act of transformational love, which is the resurrection. Jesus is referring, back, or referring forward to the resurrection here. He says, because I live, you also will live. God's victory is the good news of the kingdom that Jesus rose again from the dead. This act confronts how deeply we are loved. And again, uh, the resurrection, it's a, it's a lofty subject. It's a PhD level process, but Paul even says it's a great mystery. It's a great mystery that Christ has returned 
from the dead, that he has come back. But it is true and it is revealed to us through the Holy Spirit that Christ lives. It's the theme and the banner and the mantra of our Easter time and of our religion is that because he lives, I also live. In the closeness of Christ, that we are in him, that he will never leave or forsake us again. God shoots the Bible through and through with intimacy, with longing to be with us, and for us to experience him and, and really know him through his word. We experience true and abiding love nowhere else. He preserves us when no other one could. And then Jesus just reiterates, verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Enduring love is the new commandment that Jesus has given to the church. Our life has been created in love. God has preserved us to, the end, to that end that we live forth a life that endures and obeys. The final reflection. A couple of quotes. Uh, it's not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. And then from Martin Luther quote on faith. Yes. And um, I'm actually usually I usually always do talk back. No one's complained yet, but I'm gonna hold it till next week. I'll, I'm gonna kind of play off of this, and then we'll have a chance to kind of talk back and reflect. Um, but here are some questions for reflection. Some of them are far too obtuse to actually have a conversation about. But um, And then I also cutely styled them what, when, where, who, and how. I couldn't get a why out of there. But um, what is one commandment, vow, or outpouring of withheld love that God might be speaking about to me this morning? I'll tell you right now, mine is being neighborly. Um, we are struggling with how we can truly love our neighbors and the people that we are in proximity to. And we have a shared domicile. We have people living literally directly over our heads. Um, when has God preserved me or what trials have I come through to be here today again? What testimony do we have in our own hearts? Where can I step forward into trusting that God will provide whatever it is I need? Who in the spiritual community can help me in my journey? And who am I helping? How am I experiencing the Holy Spirit in my life? That's a big one. Don't worry too much about that one.